Hello, welcome to the Slow Boring Podcast, which may or may not exist beyond this. Uh, but I had an interview scheduled uh, with uh, Catherine Page Harton, who is the author of a great new book called The Genetic Lottery. And then uh, I somewhat unexpectedly had my run on the weeds cut short, but I still really wanted to talk to her about the book. She was kind enough to uh, take the time and, and do this, have this conversation. So welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Matt. I appreciate it. This is like a subject that I I have been anticipating this book long before it existed. Uh, at some point when I, w- I was a philosophy major in college, and I, I tried to pitch like a thesis topic that was sort of related to this. And the professor, my advisor, she kind of like gave me the stink eye, also pointed out that I didn't understand any of the relevant science and probably should not <laughs> go off on this, um, you know, which I think was correct, uh, which is why I think it's it's great to have this uh, coming from someone like you who, who really is steeped in, in the science. But I wanted to talk a little bit about just at the end point, the kind of social consequences. Something you write about in the book is this like pearl of wisdom. It's something like kids who read early hear a million more words from their from their parents, something like that. And I remember I, I saw a poster about this on the wall of my school one day. And I just thought like, Wow, this is like we're teaching children a terrible lesson in causal inference by having this up on the wall. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a cl- it's like a classic finding um, from an old study, which was originally focused on um, you know the difference between parents who are kind of like affluent managerial class parents versus lower income parents, where they went into their homes and they just were observed how did parents talk to their kids and it evolved into this kind of um, uh, 30 million word gap that the affluent parents, uh, children of affluent parents heard 30 million more words. Um, And there's so many things that we can talk about that study about like, you know, perhaps low income parents or parents of color respond differently to white investigators being in their house (laughs) than do people who know professors in their social lives. And um, there's been a number of attempts to replicate that study, which have, you know, that, that is a, like, that is a separate issue you get in, whether just even that the gap exists, but it was seized on as this kind of, you know, darling of, um, educators and policymakers on both the, you know, the right and the left as, you know, we should take this word gap seriously because those differences in words heard um, are correlated with other aspects of, you know, what people call school readiness, right? Like how well can you read in kindergarten? Mm. Um, and it is, it, it is a, it is a fundamental problem in causal inference that is, that is actually so pervasive that once you start noticing it, it can kind of drive you a little bit nuts, which is observing correlations between something that parents are doing and something, some way that kids are different and assuming that X is causing Y and then coming up with an elaborate expensive scheme to change X. Um, And, you know, I find like I have often a hard time convincing people of how common that is. Like I really, I, I feel like I always end up being like, will you please just go to a journal, any journal in psychology or sociology and read it and count how many instances of this kind of uh, 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 research um, design you find because it's it's extraordinarily common. 
And I think, you know, obviously there's a lot of problems with that study, but just the obvious pervasive one is that, so, okay, I mean, highly verbal parents have highly verbal (laughs) children, right? Because they're they're related to each other. And and that's not to say that's the only reason, but it's clearly a factor, right? So like my kid is tall and he was talking to a friend of his who's two years older than him. And she was like devastated to realize that, that, you know, he's taller than she is. And her mom pointed out, well, it's like, well, Jose's dad is tall and, and his mom is really tall. And, you know, so he's, he's tall and there's more to height than just that, but we, we know it's a factor. Um, and it's a, it's, I think a problem in this parenting space because there's no there's no point in shaming working class people for not having every random lifestyle habit of richer parents right there may be specific things that you really can tease out right where the parenting practice is having a large effect but anything you pick there's going to be this correlation between high SES parents and their kids. And unless you actually try to control for the relatedness, you're going to be like putting just incredible amounts of like pointless stress on people (laughs) for for things that have no efficacy and there's nothing they can do about. Yeah. I mean, I think there's kind of two related issues here. And one is exactly what you're saying, which is to what extent do researchers inadvertently stigmatize cultural difference with this kind of deficit framework, right? Like Mm -hmm. who is to say what is the right way of talking to your kids? And and in fact, if you look worldwide, you know, patterns of child-directed speech, like at what age does it begin and how frequent is it? And, you know, the habit amongst, um, you know, kind of my group of parents, which are highly educated um, affluent white mothers, which is this habit of asking qu- children questions to which you already know the answer, right? Like all the time. It's profoundly weird, actually, if you stop and think about it. Um, to what extent do we should we want to say that that's quote unquote better? I think that's one issue. And then I think there's another issue in which we do see that children of low income families do begin kindergarten you know, less able to um, string together phonemes and add and subtract numbers. Their number sense is looser. And I think that generally, like, knowing what causes that is a good thing to know. Like, it's it's kind of become like a, like a radical statement to say that, like, we should understand the world in order to, or like, as a kind of a useful precondition for trying to change it. Um but I think that's true. If we really are interested in improving kids' lives without attaching ourselves to shaming, you know, what might be ancillary cultural differences between people, I think we have to take this problem of causal inference seriously. And genetics isn't, you know, I talk about this in the book, genetics isn't like a cure-all for that. Um, but whenever we're talking about, particularly when we're talking about child development, human development, where so many of the environments in which children live their lives are provided for or structured by their parents, it's very difficult to get out of having to think about why children and parents are similar to one another. Like you inevitably run against this problem of trying to think about 
genetics. And again, not that genetics is everything. It's, it's how do we get that out of the way so that we can do better causal inference about the environments that I think um, most social scientists are interested in. And, and I think social scientists know this in other context, right? If you're doing studies, you need to, you know, you have a control for race or you have a control for income. And it's not to say that's the only thing that matters. Yeah. But these are such obviously important parts of our society that if you're not incorporating them into your analysis, you're not going to be revealing anything that's interesting. Yeah. Something, something you talk about in the book is that, um, Parents who have more than one children, mothers who have more than one children in particular, have a, a good like intuitive grasp of, <laughs> of genetic correlates. Yeah, yeah. Because they so know that they didn't like totally revise their parenting philosophy over time. And that, you know, that makes a difference, but only so much of a difference, right? That kids... I don't know. They are different they, from they one another. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they are. I mean, that finding comes from a study where, you know, people are just asked, like, you know, they don't even, I don't think, use the word heritability. They just say, like, how much do you think genes may influence these things? And they give, um, this is Emily Willoughby at the University of Minnesota and her colleagues, um, and they give people a whole spectrum of things, you know, ranging from how much do genes influence eye color and height to how much do genes influence schizophrenia or intelligence or political beliefs or breast cancer. You know, there's a whole range of traits. And they, you know, they find that on average, um, almost no one says zero, right? So lay Americans think that genes influence things, um, that the average estimate of genetic influence kind of generally tracks with heritability estimates from twin studies. So twin studies typically find that, you know, eye color is more heritable than political beliefs. And people also believe that that's true. Um, and that mothers of more than one child are the group that is most accurate on average in terms of their estimates. And I think that's really about opportunities to observe difference. When people think about genetics, they so often think about it purely in the vein that we've been talking about it so far, which is how are parents like their kids, right? How are kids like their parents? But half of the genetic variability is within families, right? Genetics is also about difference and the way that differences play out. How are my kids different from me? How are my kids different from one another? Um, and so you know, often when people kind of back up to a very strong, you know, there is no way that genetics influences something like education or intelligence or personality. I really am like, have you ever spent time with children before? Like, have you been around them? Because I think if you, if you are around them, particularly if you're around, you know, siblings or cousins, you, you have this front row seat to see how genetic difference plays out very early in development. Like my children as infants felt very, very different to me in terms of their, their temperament. And then also like what they elicited from me in terms of my maternal behavior. Mm -hmm. So, so how do you do this, right? If we, if we want to say, mm -hmm. okay, well, we should, we should control for genetics. Um, you know, so you could look at, uh, adoptions, right? Mm -hmm. Do, do kids who are adopted by certain kinds of families have outcomes that are similar to the biological children. You can look at 
twin studies. Uh, so you can see, I guess, like how much more similar are identical twins than fraternal twins. Yeah. Or you can look at, um, I mean, this is kind of a similar to an adoption design in a way. So if you don't, if you can't measure anything about DNA, then what you're, what you're looking for are those cases in which people's social relationships of, of family are uncoupled a little bit from the ordinary biological relatedness that you see between family members. So the classic one is, you know, do parents resemble their, or do children resemble their parents if they were adopted rather than inherited genes from them? Um, a kind of similar twist on that is to look at, this was what most of my graduate work was on actually, is a, a design called children of twins. So you're not looking at twin kids, you're looking at, you know, two sisters, one of whom got divorced and the other one didn't, or one of whom had teenager had a baby as a teenager and the other didn't. Um, their kids are inheriting the same genes, right? Like you're, you know, you're genetically related to your aunt as you are to your mother, if your parents are identical twins, but you have different social relationships. Um, so that was, you know, the thing that's great about those studies is that they, um, you know, they don't really depend on measuring the genome in any way, but they're also dependent on sort of weird samples, right? Like are, you know, are the families who adopt children representative of the population? Are the children who are adoptive representative of the population? What's interesting about the ability to measure the genome directly is it kind of gives us new twists on that old design. So um, there was a really influential paper by um, Kong and his colleagues in science a couple of years ago where they measured parental genetics and kid genetics. And they basically divided the parental genome into, well, these are the genes that the kids got and they, these are the genes that the kids didn't get, right? So it's basically dividing the parent genome into like one half is like an adopted parent. You don't share any genes. And one half is like a twin. You've got the exact mm -hmm. same as them. So you're, you're, you know, that's another way to try to leverage, you know, in a sample of people who are not twins and not adoptees, this kind of, um, decoupling of the genetic relationship from the social relationships provided by parenthood. And I think ultimately, you know, like this is like everything else in science and epidemiology, you know, the most convincing evidence comes when you've, you know, triangulated on that from a, from a couple of different, um, different designs. Right. And, and now though, we have, um, we have the technology to actually look at people's, Genomes, yeah. uh, relatively inexpensive. I mean, I've done the 23andMe. I think a, a lot of other people probably have done similar things. And I assume scientists can do something more exciting than, I mean, mine told me that my grandparents came from exactly where I already knew they came <laughs> from. I mean, I guess it was yeah. good to know that they weren't lying, but, <laughs> you know, it wasn't, it wasn't yeah. exactly revelatory to me. Um, but we can really do this at mass scale now, right? And sequence entire human genomes and peek under the hood and see, see what's in there, yeah. even if it's hard to interpret. Yeah. I mean, it's actually just a stunning achievement if you stop and think about it. I mean, when I started doing genetics in college, it was very painstaking with animals versus for with humans. And to think about the 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 
cheapness and the scale and the rapidity which, which you, from which you can get genetic information um, and, and dense high coverage genetic information from people is really remarkable, right? Um, you know, it's like you spit into a tube and it costs you like $50 a person and you extract DNA and you get hundreds of thousands or even millions of DNA variants between people. And, you know, it's that the level of the the scale of that is just exploding, right? I mean, 23andMe or Ancestry, UK Biobank in the US, we're about to get the All of Us project or the Million Veterans Program. Um, one thing that comes up a lot in terms of conversations about the usefulness of genetics is like, what does it add across other pieces of information you can get about people. And, you know, in my research as a, like my work as a researcher, you know, we test kids in the lab and it's always amazing to me because I think the genotyping is the easy part, Mm -hmm. like doing a really good cognitive assessment on a child or like getting a parent to sit down and fill out a personality inventory. That is effortful. That takes a lot of like, you know, wrangling them and training research assistants and figuring out how to, you know, coming up with scoring manuals, like them spitting in a tube is the easiest piece of information <laughs> that I can get from them at this point in time. Right. But I mean, you know, that's a real, that's a, a striking change over time. Yeah. Um, and I yeah. think, you know, uh, in, in the study we, we mentioned before where people estimate the heritability of things, uh, one of the ones that that people sort of overestimated was breast cancer, which, yeah. I, which I think is in part because there's like a specific gene, gene. that people know about and, and they look for. And I think once upon a time, people maybe thought, well, we'll find like a gene for X for mm-hmm. tons and tons of stuff like that, that that's what it'll mean for things to be strongly genetically heritable. We'll get we'll get like the big nose gene and the, the floppy ears gene. And I think that has not panned out really it turns out to be you can't just look at somebody and say okay this does this this does that yeah it does it's not it's not modular like that you don't get these kind of specific um single variants of large effect it's actually amazing to go back and reread the early gwas concept papers um or the first bit of results that people got because they would make predictions that seem wildly optimistic in retrospect. Mm -hmm. Right. So they would say things like there might be as many as 10 genes affecting autism, Mm -hmm. which we now realize is an underestimate on by several orders of magnitude. Um, And people used to talk about the gay gene or people would talk about uh, serotonin transporter polymorphism as a depression gene. And none of that panned out for complex behavioral and social outcomes, but even physical outcomes like height, we are always talking about many genes of small effect and shifting from this single gene kind of Mendelian disorder model of what it means for genes to matter to you have thousands of little tiny things, each of which have an infinitesimal effect that nudge you in one direction versus the other, but that are meaningful in the collective. I think it's a really hard, it's like a hard intuition to kind of overcome in terms of our thinking about the relationship between genes and behavior. 
And I mean, not just an intuitive, at least like when I was in high school, at one point they sit you down in biology and they're like, this is how genetics works, right? And yeah, like, and you, you do got the, the wrinkled P and the brown P. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. and I mean, that's, that's not true. So, I mean, it's, it's understandable why people might be mis, have yeah. a misconception about this. Um, I, I don't know exactly how, if they're going to change the high school textbooks or, or I mean, doesn't that would be- science education works generally as like, you just realize as you go through that they've like progressively kind of lied to you by simplifying things, right? Like you, you, like you learn your, you know, your high school, you know, chemistry model on like how electrons work. And then you get to college and you're like, not right about what they taught me in ninth grade um i feel like you know albert einstein is famous enough that you sort of get previewed when you're taught newtonian mechanics that that's not really right (laughs) that like you know that there's a relativity but yeah i mean in other fields they just teach you something that's easier to learn model yeah this is Um, a model you know all models are wrong, but some are useful. And I guess some are useful <laughs> developmentally. Um, but like back to the poly, you know, the polygenic yeah. thing. I think that people who th- who are in psychology or sociology or economics or political science or policy spaces are used to thinking about their social environments that way. Mm-hmm. As like there's lots of there are lots of things that are happening in combination. Like you know, the effects of growing up poor isn't just one thing. It's, you know, that is a stand-in for many, many variables that are all interacting in like complicated ways. Um, And yet they have, often I feel like people who are trained in the social sciences have trouble applying that knowledge of causes can be probabilistic and multi-determined to the space of talking about genes. And instead of thinking about genetic causes the way that they think about like how does social media affect political polarization they go back to thinking about it like Mendel's pea plants right which which I think it's a source of a lot of confusion about what I mean when I say that genes influence behavior but so I mean I guess one difference is that you we have in the sort of sociological sphere, these Mm -hmm. higher order constructs, right? So we might say so-and-so grew up in an affluent suburban neighborhood, and that is a cause of something statistically. And now we know like what's an affluent suburban neighborhood, right? That's a complicated social phenomenon Mm -hmm. that has a million components, but we do have this concept. Like I can say those words and you can picture what I, what I mean, right? Like Mm -hmm. what that bundle is when you do the, you you use the the acronym GWAS earlier, gene wide association study. That's it's, um, that's a statistical construct, right? Like you chunk through a million samples and all these different variables and the outcome of interest. And you come up with something and you say, okay, well, here's our or polygenic score, right? Here's the index mm-hmm. that we've created. And so, okay, this is the this is the educational attainment polygenic index. And if you're high on it or middle on it or, or low on it, that's meaningful. But it's I mean, it's it's hard for me to understand like what does that what does that mean exactly? It's like it's the output of a of a model rather than something that that feels tangible. Yeah, that's a really interesting comparison because as you say that, I realize that 
I conceptualize those two types of things as quite similar, mm-hmm. right? When I say that someone is high on a polygenic score, I say, you know, what I'm saying is you have a number of genetic variants that are correlated with going further in school. And I've smushed them together into a, a you know, a single number that represents a constellation of disparate factors. And that's very similar to thinking about what we say when we say that, you know, someone from a higher socioeconomic status family goes on to school. The process by which we arrived at the polygenic score is different. So it's not going in with a um, kind of an observation. Well, is it though? Even as I say that, like, you know, like why do we think of SES as a variable? Like, why is that the variable that, right. you know, almost all researchers include, right? There's just this, this comment, this, this uh, uh, composite of occupational status, income, and educational attainment, right? Like, well, that comes from an observation about the world. Like, what variables do we describe that kind of capture the most variation in our outcomes, even if we're not quite sure why they're related to these things? And that's essentially what a GWAS is doing. It's just beginning with with much more granular information. Um, yeah, I mean, arguably, we're just used to it, right? Like you go to college, mm-hmm. you start taking some classes in economics or political science or sociology related fields, and you know, you are taught right that there's a socioeconomic status variable and some of the stuff that goes into it, and that you know these different things. They probably each matter separately. We're not exactly sure which one is most important or exactly how decisive it is. And you, I mean, you come to accept it, right? And then journalists Mm -hmm. are familiar with that kind of work. We write about social science studies. And so people who read certain kinds of publications get get accustomed to that language. Mm -hmm. Um, I I guess, and you say, I mean, it feels similar to you, I think, because you're, you're steeped in that yeah. work, right? So it it's natural. Uh, but like what to, for people who aren't, like what what is it, right? When you when you have <laughs> when, when you have yeah. an index, it's like, okay, so you're looking at there's like a hundred thousand different variants, each of which could mm-hmm. be in the like pro X or anti X, yeah. and you count yeah. up how many of them are flipped in which direction. Yeah, you're, that's literally what you're doing. So, you know, just to back up a second, remember you have two copies of everything. You got one from your mother, one from your father. And what genetics is concerned with is difference. So to what extent do you have a, you know, a certain DNA sequence that I don't have? So for instance, at a particular spot on the genome, your DNA letter might be a T and I have a C right there. Um And you could have gotten two T's, a T and a C, or two C's, right? So one of those is the rarer version. And so the first thing that people are doing is just counting how many copies of this quote-unquote minor allele do you have? How many copies of the rare version do you have? And you have zero, one, or two. And then they're saying, do I think that this, you know, having copies of the rare version, let's take height for a second. Do I think that that's generally height associated with being taller or associated with being shorter and not just is it positively or negatively associated but how strongly right is this is this going to be associated with being a foot taller no an inch taller no 
you know, a tenth of an inch or one hundredth of an inch or a thousandth of an inch. Like those are the magnitude of the correlations that we're talking about. And so each of those counts of minor allele, zero, one, two, are weighted by the anticipated correlation with height, right? So this is a height increasing allele um, or height decreasing allele. And that's literally just added up. It's summed over the, the whole genome. Um, I'm alighting some technical details about how you account for the fact that variants are correlated with one another. Mm -hmm. That is a whole black hole we could go down, but I don't actually think it's important for the purposes of understanding that. It's, it's really just saying how many variants do you have and what's our best guess based on what we've already done, what we've already studied, on whether those are associated with being higher or lower on some trait, and how can I mash them together? So that's really mechanistically opaque and and gross, right? Like it's really messy. So it could be that a, a, an allele is associated with going further in school because it slightly increases, you know, the speed of neural transmission such that you are faster at responding to new stimuli in your environment. Or it could be that you um, are a morning person and schools start like my, you know, my kids school start at 7.30 a.m. Or it could be that you um, started puberty earlier and early developing girls get negative attention from boys and are less likely to go, you know, to persist in math classes, right? Like it could be any number of those processes. Um, and we don't know why it's just the, the constellation of it. Mm -hmm. Again, I, what I think is important is that SES is very similar. We're just, I think you're right that we're just more used to thinking about it, right? Like when we say that someone goes further in school because they come from, a more affluent background, that is any number of mechanisms ranging from prenatal environment to better early childhood education to um, genetic inheritance from, from parents mm -hmm. to children. We're just used to, I think, alighting the mechanistic complexity of SES in a way that we have to pay more attention to with polygenic scores because they're novel and we're thinking about how they're constructed. Right. And so, so one of the, I mean, big, big themes in the book, and I guess big themes in your work is the assembling of a score like this for educational attainment. And mm -hmm. I, as you were alluding to there, that's something that is, I guess, related to, but distinct from just kind of like intelligence, right? That there's a lot of mm -hmm. aspects of succeeding in school or going far in school, um, that, you know, it relates to all different kinds of things, but many of those things may have genetic underpinnings. Um, and so you can get, to, depending on if if school is your outcome of interest, rather than how do you do on a, on a single, like, sit-down test, uh, you can you can use that and you can find... Um, I guess some some fairly meaningful correlations between people's gene sets and and how they do. Although I will say I, I was actually surprised as someone who came into this. I mean, before I read your book, I I believed that genes had a large influence on educational attainment. Uh, the the GWAS estimate is actually quite a bit lower than what's in the yeah. published twin studies. Yeah. So there's a couple different things going on here. And one is, you're right, the shift from thinking about intelligence as measured by standardized IQ tests versus thinking about 
educational attainment as measured by your grades or how many years of schooling you complete. And those are not the same thing. Um, we see higher in just thinking about the twin world, we see higher heritability for IQ versus educational attainment. And there's lots of reasons for that. One is what you're alluding to, which is that people get through school, people have an easier time getting through school on the basis of characteristics other than just how good are they at memorizing things or rotating information in their head or dealing with abstract knowledge. Um, you know, children who can sit still do better in school. Children who are agreeable and like teachers to like them and don't get in trouble do better in school. Um, so there's there's a whole kind of constellation of what economists call non-cognitive, non-cognitive traits, which are just other things about you that make your school life easier or harder uh, other than your the kind of skills that are tested by formal IQ tests. The other thing is that um, we see a much bigger role of the family environment for educational attainment than we do for measured IQ. So if we're just looking, again, thinking about twin studies, to what extent are siblings raised in the same home, similar for an outcome, above and beyond what we can attribute to their genetic similarity? And you see pretty substantial influences of that for um, going to college, getting through college, but m much more than you do for intelligence test scores, which I think tells you, I mean, something that's sort of intuitive about how privilege works, right? Like if you, you know, I cannot necessarily like meaningfully move the bar that much on my kids' um, spatial rotation skills, but like I can get them into college, right? And I can like drag them through the college process. Like I think we're seeing like that's what affluent parents do. They don't necessarily make their kids smarter in the ways that um, that are measured by IQ tests, but they guarantee a certain like educational floor for them, regardless of their measured level of of, of cognitive skills. So what you see is that, you know, just from moving from thinking about IQ to education, we should anticipate genetic influences to be lower. Like that's what twin studies have suggested mm -hmm. for years. <clears throat> and then also we're moving from um, a design that's not measuring anything about your genome, mm -hmm. right? Like are identical twins more similar than fraternal twins to trying to identify specific genes. And those estimates are always going to be you know, they are consistently lower than the twin estimates you get. So people talk about this as the missing heritability problem. To what extent is that gap going to be closed when we sequence the genome better and we get bigger samples? Um, we're better at measuring our phenotypes. Um, I think that, you know, there's a lot of kind of technical wrangling you can have around that. Um, what I find interesting is that even though what we're getting from GWAS of education is much lower than twin estimates of heritability, it's still commensurate with most of the effects in the social sciences that we already are used to thinking of as important. Yeah. And, and so that's the benchmarking that I that I that I want people to keep coming back to, which is like, how does this compare to environmental measured variables? Right. And so there's a there's a chart in the book and it's showing sort of like college going and it it uses mm -hmm. the polygenic score and it also uses, I think like what quintile family uh, income. Yeah. Of, of family income you're in. And you see that they both matter, like quite a mm -hmm. 
fit, right? And then in particular, mm-hmm. kids with low polygenic scores, but rich parents are still pretty likely to go to college. To go to college. And, and yeah. kids with the very best scores um, and, and poor parents still kind of go to college, but it's where you're in the broad middle ground there, right? It's, it's still, it, it's making, they're, they're both significant independent impacts. And if you think one is of note and, you know, consequential for how we think about society, the other one is similar in its scope and magnitude. Yeah. And I would say they're not, I mean, they're fully, they're not fully independent in the Mm -hmm. sense that they're correlated, right? Um, And they interact with one another likely in the the course of development of any one individual person, but they're not redundant pieces of information. And I don't think they're redundant axes of inequality. Mm -hmm. So if we are care, if we care either empirically or politically about how do people starting places in life, structure their life outcomes how do we make sense of that what do we do about it how do we understand the mechanisms i think the genome merits our attention as as one dimension of inequality one starting point in life that does have associations with how people end up in life in ways that we care about and so this is i mean where you get into the more uh, philosophical or, or political aspects of this. But, you know, one thing I think people are very comfortable with is the idea, I mean, we we observe, right, that, you know, there are big inequalities in living standards in our society, and that those inequalities transmit to some extent from one generation mm-hmm. to another. And, you know, so people will look and they'll say, oh, you know, Matt's a writer, his dad was a writer, both of his grandparents were writers, his mom was not a writer, but she worked at Newsweek. And you say, ah, like this is nepotism, right? Like, like the mm-hmm. system is rigged and that's really, really bad. But then people will say, well, I don't know. Maybe he just like inherited a good writing from all these, these writers in his family. And so, you know, good for him. Like the system works. It's all, it's all fair. We're, we're living in a great meritocracy. Um, and your view is we shouldn't necessarily think of those things as so, so different, right? In their implications. Yeah, I, I think it might be the wrong, the wrong point of emphasis. <laughs> so, as you say, the the example about your your you know your parents, uh, writers running in your family, the Times had that thing of a little while back about like you know, what are the most sort of dynastic occupations, right? Mm -hmm. Like what occupations have the strongest father-son correlations? And there's a couple that really come out and it's, you know, like working for the Forest Service or being a dentist. Um, In my family, like there was at one point in time, four FedEx pilots with the last name Harden because it was my dad, my uncle, and two of my male cousins. Um, And so that's, you know, aviation is like the dynastic occupation in in the Harden family. People don't really care about nepotism for being in the Forest Service. And they don't particularly care about it in terms of nepotism for being a pilot. Where they care about it is where the occupation coincides with 
hierarchies of power, I think, and prestige, right? Like we care about nepotism. It causes outrage, I think, to the extent that it is associated with being in an outsized position of power and influence in society. So that's kind of what I want to talk about, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I think I'm less interested in, you know, to what extent is dynastic transmission of being a writer genetic versus an environmental versus to what extent are, is, does our feelings of agita around Mm -hmm. that actually stemming from the extent to which certain professions are gated to like positions of influence and power and certain positions aren't right. right? Like it's, I mean, going back to your early comment about like, you know, focusing on educational attainment versus IQ and, and taking genetics seriously as a dimension of inequality in education what follows for me personally from that is not, okay, so now we should engineer a society in which all people, regardless of genotype, have the exact same chances of getting a PhD in a STEM field. It's how does visualizing the relationship between genetic luck and education and, and then education and then all of the other things that we give to more educated people in our society force us to confront some of our expectations around like, the outsized role I think that formal education is playing and sort of hierarchies of power and prestige. Right. That's the, that's the part that I'm sort of pushing people towards. Right. Well, and you know, one, one view, right. I mean, this is a kind of a, a, a right wing blank slatey view, but it's like, well, people won't go to school and develop advanced skills unless they're rewarded economically for it. So we need to have very large inequalities of income because that's like the only way like there's going to be doctors and, you know, people, you know, with enough math mm-hmm. to do accounting and and be engineers and, and run things. Whereas to the extent that we think some of this stuff is, is it's not like pure will, right? Like you don't just get to wake up one day and decide which aptitudes you're going to have in life, that it's part of the realm of chance and where we, you know, we sort of accept, right, that some people, um, you know, are like better at some things than others. Some people have had certain kinds of misfortunes in life and certain kinds of um, I don't know, just like human needs that can be met regardless of, um, you know, like what anybody did earlier on in life, right? I mean, if mm-hmm. if how far you go in school is not just something that, you know, you can like motivate yourself into, that suggests like we don't need as much of like material incentives and, and inequality to kind of drive people forward. I'm not arguing that incentives don't matter. There's nothing about, you know, there isn't some sort of magic zone in which humans are kind of free of the power of instrumental conditioning and Thorndike's law of effect. Like incentives matter for people and we should take those seriously. That's a very instrumental argument around, um, around merit, right? Mm -hmm. Which is that like, I need to structure this in a certain way and this will be better for everyone. And I, you know, there's certainly some truth to that. Um, that's different though, than I think the narrative that many people often fall into, which is 
this less instrumental view of merit and this more kind of virtue view of merit. Mm-hmm. That like students are good students or bad students, that people deserve certain things on the virtue of their hard work. And that kind of appeal to um, dessert and the kind of like, kind of, I mean, people call non-cognitive skills, which are things that get through through school, sometimes they call them character, right? It's mm-hmm. that like kind of moralizing around the attributes that um, are good for formal education as we set up that I'm inviting people to be kind of more curious about, about that. Um, and especially when we're thinking about, yes, you know, incentives matter, um, but there's kind of also a zone of incentivizability in mm-hmm. a way, right? Like <laughs> there's, there's, you know, our, our entire approach to economic inequality cannot be, we're just going to incentivize people to learn to code. Like mm-hmm. then you just get like, deeply unsatisfactory, I think, approaches to to poverty and economic inequality. And to some extent, right, if you understand what the specific elements that that influence achievement are, you can maybe address them, right? I mean, if you if you could mm-hmm. take, you know, a GWAS back to, well, I don't know, if th- th- there was actually enough school back then, but but like before there were glasses, right? Um, mm-hmm. nearsightedness yeah. would have been an incredible impediment to school. And now it probably isn't, but that's because we test kids' vision and we give them and, glasses. And fix it. Yeah, and, and we address the problem. We're, we're aware that there's nothing between like the teacher, the student, their homework, right? Like nothing in the curriculum is going to substitute for addressing like the shape of your your eyes, right? And <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I don't know. It's like if school, if kids, if 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 you can ever isolate like a fidgeting polygenic score, and just kids who fidget a lot, ADHD, are doing probably right. <laughs> that probably already exists. Yeah. You know, and it's like, well, maybe like maybe we need to make a classroom environment like friendlier to fidgety kids, or like maybe there's something we can actually do. Right. If we if we better understand like the Mm -hmm. the uh, what it is that actually pushes people through life trajectories. Yeah. I mean, I think that there are there are probably, you know, one of my colleagues refers to these as sort of um, hidden pockets of excellence where people may discount what they're doing because they happen to have a concentration of students who are pretty statistically likely to succeed anyways. And so we, it's hard for us to see that they're doing something more that's actually effective. Mm -hmm. And also I think hidden pockets of pockets of excellence in which students appear to be struggling, but they have a huge concentration of students who um, have other challenges and, you know, just looking at the surface of like, what are the average test scores of a school is really hiding. These schools are doing something good here. And we're very used to thinking about this in terms of, again, the concentration of poor students versus rich students in a school, right? Like, mm-hmm. well, we can't just compare test, test scores across districts because, you know, we might just be comparing apples and oranges. So, if we take seriously the idea that genetic information is is not redundant with the things we already measure about kids' lives, and 
is a dimension of inequality that statistically predicts, even if we can't really say why or how, ultimate educational outcomes, that gives us a really powerful new tool to try to investigate, like, what are the pockets of excellence that might be otherwise going hidden? Like, what are the most effective teachers, schools, school districts doing? In my ideal world, we would be doing more of that type of, you know, what would we, in my ideal world, what we would do with genetics is bringing it to bear on those sorts of problems, right? Like using it as another tool to take into, take seriously student heterogeneity so we can identify things that actually make a difference for kids' lives. While also recognizing that even if we had the most ideal schools that have ever existed for every child, there's still going to be differences between them in what they like to do and what they're good at. So how do we decouple um, our emphasis on these one types of skills, the ones that are cultivated in American universities from the, the economic security, from access to healthcare, from sort of relationships of um, respect and prestige. So I think we should take education seriously as an end for all children and also, it should be less the only path to a quote unquote the components of a good life right. for Americans. So evidently, that's a very controversial statement. I don't, I don't really know why that seems not that it shouldn't be that controversial, but it seems that it is. <laughs> well, you know, I, I, I think, I think that probably if you put it that way, that that is not that controversial of a statement. What scares people is the idea that you know genetics is going to go other places, right? So, I mean, I, I was looking mm-hmm. at my my 23andMe traits and I was happy to see that they say um, I won't lose, uh, my hair probably won't be thinning before I'm 40. I probably won't have a bald spot. Um, obviously, if you've ever seen me, I, I wound up on the, on the less <laughs> probable side of that. And, you know, I, look, and if you know statistics, if you follow Nate Silver's tweets, mm-hmm. right? Like, they're not wrong just because they said, there was a 74% chance I wouldn't go bald before mm-hmm. 40. Yeah. I'm just in the 26%. But mm-hmm. it would be um, really annoying if I submitted to a credit score GWAS mm-hmm. that said I was unlikely to be able to repay my mortgage. So I had to have a higher interest rate. And I was sitting here mm-hmm. saying like, but like, Fuck you, man! Like I'm, I'm good for it. Like I'm, I'm gonna pay it back. And they're like, "Look, we're not casting mm-hmm. any judgment on you. We're just saying there's a statistical association, and we don't just loan to you, right? We loan to hundreds yeah. of thousands of people, and like we're playing the numbers here. And I'm saying no, yeah. like this is discrimination. And they're saying no, it's it's statistics. And that's like mm-hmm. that's I, I feel like a like a dark kind of vision of of the yeah. world people people yeah. don't like racial stereotyping gender stereotyping and you know we could potentially develop much more we'll say like well this is like way more scientific than just deciding like oh i don't like irish people or something but it it like it has the same impact it's like it feels dehumanizing yeah i mean i think you're totally true and i also think that people don't often stop and think about the ways in which that is already happening to them, right? Mm -hmm. Like you are a man, I'm assuming that you've paid for car insurance at one point in time. 
in a state other than California that I think made it <laughs> illegal to change, charge different car insurance rates for men. But, you know, if you've ever um, paid taxes differently because you're married versus unmarried, mm-hmm. if you've ever paid more for health insurance because you live in um, one area of the country versus another, the, the extent to which people bear costs on the basis of actuarial judgments made by institutions for things over which they have little to no control is really ubiquitous. And again, I, I think you're totally right that genetics makes people nervous um, in part because it, it makes them think about something that's actually already happening. That's, that's actually already true. I think the, the car insurance thing is the most, um, you know, an obvious example in which like car insurance is not protected by the genetic information, non-discrimination act car insurers already use all sorts of things about you. Um, I can completely see someone uh, at Geico being like, you know, submit your kid's uh, genotype. And if they don't have that ADHD polygenic score, like we'll give you a break on your ruinously expensive car insurance for your 16 year old. That all needs regulation, right? Mm -hmm. Like if we don't want to live in that world, then we need regulation around not being in that world. but that means we actually have to talk about the power of these scores. I think partly the conversation is so stymied right now, can feel like a dog chasing its tail because there's a there's a really vocal minority of people that are both proclaiming that it's inherently dangerous and no no good can come of it, but also that it's entirely useless and geneticists aren't finding anything. Mm-hmm. And I think we can't have a good conversation about what legitimate protections need to be put in place if we're at you know with the other hand saying this is genetic astrology, like we're not you know we're not actually getting anything that protects people's out of people's lives. Like if we want to regulate technology, we have to take technology seriously and understand what it's doing. When the car insurance is is a great example. I mean, if people don't know, uh, men, especially young men, are typically charged higher uh, insurance rates because I mean, I, I think people have probably noticed this in life, but but men, and particularly young men, are more reckless on average. Um, and it's like, but that that's kind of a bummer if you're like a responsible twenty two year old guy um driving around uh we kind of accept it as a society because we want car insurance companies to be doing a lot of actuarial work right i mean in general Mm -hmm. we think it would be dysfunctional to have safe drivers subsidizing reckless drivers um whereas but our intuitions move on that right right. once we move into healthcare, right like now we're in like pre-existing conditions like how granularly do you apportion risk i think is a really uh, is like the we have all we have many conflicting intuitions underneath that. I think. Sorry to interrupt. You. No, no. I mean, I think that that was exactly where I was going. In in health insurance, it's you know, I think most people, certainly people on the left, don't want it to operate like a traditional insurance product uh, because the way mm-hmm. the way that would work is we would say you know you're likely to get sick, so it's going to be really hard for you to get. Healthcare, mm-hmm. and we say no. That like that's really bad. Like that's that's sad. We that's the people who we need to get health insurance. So you know, there for genetics. I mean, I think there would be an overwhelming argument to say, look, we want people to do a lot of screening 
for genetic health risks, because that's really useful to know. But we absolutely want to prohibit using it in underwriting, both because it's unfair, mm-hmm. but also because, I mean, again, like we want to encourage people to to understand those health risks and address them. With the car insurance, I think it's, you know, you, you'd be bummed out if you wound up, you know, like getting the wrong score and needing to pay higher rates. But- but like it yeah. might be good. I mean, we, you know, to the extent that people have some margin in which they decide, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna ride the bus to work versus drive a car. Like it, it might be the people with the bad driving genes. I don't know. I'm terrible at driving, and like I used to almost <laughs> never drive. Well, the, the, the pandemic got me driving, yeah. and I've like I've like. I don't know. I've like hit four people. It's bad. And you know, like getting people who are bad at driving off the road seems like a reasonable idea, even if it would make people uncomfortable. I mean, I'm really glad that you brought up the like, but what are they going to do if they don't drive? Right. Like, are they going to take a bus? Um, uh, You know, I live in Austin, which is a city that refuses to take itself seriously as a city and so has terrible public transportation (laughs) And so not having a car is exclusionary, right? right? Like you are excluded from many jobs. You are excluded from shopping at many places. It is very difficult to live your life. It's very difficult to be a parent if you don't have a car in Austin. So for me, there's always the like, okay, if you, if you've decided that you want that the best thing is, you know, we want for-profit car insurers because they provide a service and that incentivizes good driving and um, people who've made quote-unquote good choices around driving are not subsidizing risk by like quote-unquote bad drivers. How does that not exclude people from participation on the basis of things that they might not have control over Mm -hmm. or even things that they do have control over, right? Like, so... A place, a society where we've decided that like car insurance is ruinously expensive if like your young male have a history of accidents and a high ADHD polygenic score is more acceptable if we also have amazing public transportation, like as a public good so people can still participate in the the economy without like owning and operating a private vehicle. That seems to me the frame of mind that's that's really important about around many of these issues, which is like if it's being used for individual selection, how is it not being used for exclusion of people mm-hmm. such that regardless of your genotype, the thing we really care about, which is like being able to get around, being able to have a job, being able to feel like you're part of community is still everyone still has equal access to that. Right. Then I mean, obviously the other thing that alarms people about talking about genetics, I think, is what we haven't talked about here, but which is which is race, right? I mean, mm-hmm. people, well, some people do want to say we are going to just point to genetic sources of racial inequality, and others are very fearful that that's sort of inevitably where the conversation is going to go and where it has gone uh, sort of many times in the past, uh, that's not really what, I mean, I don't just want to say that's, that's not what your book is about, but like specifically the way the, the GWAS research is done is like, it's with respect to a specific ancestry population. I think it's like, it's white people, um, in these cases, but you could do it on other populations, Mm -hmm. but it's like not designed to produce intergroup 
comparisons, Mm-mm. but I think that is uh, particularly in today's politics, like the number one kind of anxiety floating around about genetic, you know, particularly the research of genetics on social outcomes rather than kind of medical and health outcomes. Yeah. Although I think, you know, there's sensitivity to it around, you know, even medical outcomes mm-hmm. too. I mean, obviously that association is so strong and I think it's so strong that, you know, be- being as a researcher in this field, it's, it's kind of incumbent on you every time you talk about your work, you know, in a talk or in a paper to have to remind people like this whole study was done by finding people who are as homogenous as possible with regards to genetic ancestry in terms of having, you know, recent genetic ancestors who are all from a circumscribed geographic location. And, you know, how this, these results would play out if you had done the study using a different ancestral population um, is unknown. Like it's unclear. The results don't like um, people talk about portability. They don't port very well. Like if you do a GWAS and it's European genetic ancestry people, and then you construct a polygenic score and then you see if it predicts an outcome of educational attainment in African-Americans it doesn't really, right? Like, so the same, you're measuring the same genes, but they don't, they're not related to your phenotype in the same way. Um, so I, it's really hard to know what to do with that because, because the prior that like genes equal race is so strong mm-hmm. and yet so scientifically incorrect that I both want to constantly tell people why like race is not a genetic construct and like these results are not talking us about between racial differences. Um, but at the same time, every time we have the conversation, it kind of like reinforces this association that like genetics, you know, is telling you something about racial differences, which, you know, none of the molecular studies that I talk about in my book were conducted with anyone other than people who are of exclusively recent European genetic ancestry. Like it tells me nothing about racial differences in the U S which is a limitation, right? Like, I mean, it's a, it's a major limitation in a book about social inequality to be unable to speak to racial differences. Um, but that's not what genetics is telling us about. Right. Well, and also, I mean, this is, I, I, I left this for the end precisely because I don't mm-hmm. want to front load it in people's thinking. Yeah. But then if you want to try to think about, well, the policy implications for education mm-hmm. of these results, um, so far, I think the implications are actually quite limited because such an incredibly, I mean, a very large share of public school students, I believe a majority yeah. in the United States are African-American or, or Hispanic ancestry. So like these findings are very, they're very scientifically interesting and they're very suggestive of, I think, like future work that could be very, very important. But you can't, like if you took this to DC public schools, it's like yeah. that that's that's not telling them anything like Any, yeah, you, you would have yeah. to you would have to do new studies right i mean there would have mm-hmm. to be more research and you would have to um get more kind of kind of buy in on those things because you know the united states is obviously a diverse and increasingly diverse um kind of society yeah. and also has more um marriages across you know racial mm-hmm. quote unquote groups and we also have you know for census purposes i mean all all races socially 
constructed, but I think the American, Hispanic, and Asian census categories are especially not, you know, grounded in necessarily a lot of common ancestry of any real sport, right? I mean, we're we're talking about broad, you know, immigration geographies that have something to do with how we organize society. Um, But these are not biological classes of people no at all no they're not by no they're yeah and the in the relation between you know genetic ancestry and race is you know it's particularly bad when we're we're talking about certain racial categories it's never good but it's particularly egregiously bad and for some categories i I guess i want to step back a second and think about like what does it mean for something to be policy relevant Mm -hmm. i think when people are asking about whether or not genetics is policy relevant. One way they're thinking about policy relevance is like, you know, like you said, going to DC schools. And it's like, we're going to tell you something about the genotypes of your students, you know, and you're going to do something differently on the basis of that. Another way to think about policy relevance is just when you come up with ideas about things to try where is that coming from, mm-hmm. right? Like when the U.S. decides to invest however many millions upon dollars on the quote-unquote healthy marriage project because married parents have children who do better in school, what does that evidence base look like? Right. And that stuff is where I think the more immediate policy relevance of genetics lies, which is, again, coming back full circle – we have to stop correlating aspects of parent parent behavior and child outcomes, assuming that they're causal, and then investing a lot of money and changing it, and then being super surprised when it doesn't work, when the flaws of that have been noted for decades. Um, so in that way, I do think it is policy relevant, but policy relevant in terms of improving the pool of basic science. Mm-hmm on which ideas about what interventions and other programs we try is, you know, loosely based. Um, Maybe we would fall down fewer kind of uh, black holes of time and and opportunity. And I think, you know, and some of this has to do with with norms in in the research community, right? I mean, I assume when people are- 100%. You know, when, when people are doing studies, I mean, I think everyone is like trying to do good work. But you also think about, well, like right now, I think if you wanted to try to include some kind of genetic-based controls in your social science study, that would require extra work and is also more likely to get people yelling at you, right? So like, why do it? Right. If you're, yeah. if you if you, if you're at some margin of decision, right, like it's extra work and it probably makes it harder rather than easier to get yourself published. Right. And if yeah. the world changes and we say, no, like a study that compares parent to child outcomes and doesn't consider the genetic relatedness as a factor in that, that that's like a bad study that is not giving you accurate information. Like that would be a sea change in how this, this work is done. I think so. But we've seen sea changes before. Mm-hmm. You know, I think about um, for a long time, um, particularly in psychology, there was this enthusiasm for candidate gene studies. You know, we're going to study like the serotonin transporter polymorphism. And then, you know, some journals said, 
we're just not publishing this anymore. Like, unless you, unless you can show us genome-wide significance and replication in an independent sample, like, we're just not publishing this anymore, right? Like, we weren't, we're not even going to send this out for a review. I think we've seen a similar thing with the open science and replicability movement. It's mm-hmm. annoying to make your code available to other researchers, right? Like, making, sharing your data. There's a huge amount of meta-science activity towards doing open science that, is an investment and incentives had to be aligned with that investment in order for researchers to do it. There is a, there was a special issue of a journal that came out just last week and it was on wealth inequality and child development. Mm -hmm. And it was paper after paper after paper of this is how we've correlated parents um, debt with, children's behavior problems. Mm-hmm. And so we should forgive debt and that's going to improve children's ADHD. Oh, no. And like you might think that we're forgiving debt is a good idea, like as an end to itself, like that might be the morally right thing to do. But the fact that it had been through, you know, so many authors, so many reviewers, so many funders, a publisher, and no one had said, well, perhaps parents who impulsively take out debt have children who are impulsive for like other, like there might be additional things going on um, was really stunning to me. And I think we're not really going to make progress about understanding human development until we take this problem seriously. Yeah. I think that's a, that's a great place to stop. And, you know, and just to live a, you know, cautionary note, right. I mean, it's like, you know, if you strongly believe in debt forgiveness, building that case based on promises of impacts on children that are then not going to pan out, like that's not that's not going to be sustainable, right? In any real way, and I think we've had, you know, we've had a lot of frustration with sort of failed policy interventions, mm-hmm. and people feel burnout about it with good reason. Uh, but it's still mm-hmm. important to you know see what we can do to help people and and make the world a better place. One hundred percent. And trying to come up with like good ideas um, is really worth it, rather than you know, sort of like BSE explanations for, for, for benefits that are going to follow. I don't know. I mean, I'm an idealist. You're a professor. So academics are supposed to care, <laughs> care about the truth anyway. Yeah. <laughs> professors are by nature, you know, a little bit deluded, I think. Otherwise, they, you know, you have to be an optimist to start a PhD and think I'm going to get a faculty job. But I, I am an idealist in the sense that to be a social scientist is to say, I'm going to do what everyone does, which is to go around and try to make sense of other people in the social world. But I'm going to bring to bear the tools of empiricism to that with the, with the aim of actually making children's lives better, right? It sucks to be a parent when you have a child with unmanaged ADHD and you don't know what to do and they're not doing well in school. Like that is actual distress. I think it's, a privilege to spend your life thinking about what causes what in children's lives. So let's do that. Right. Like, like let's actually, you know, let's actually, um, let's actually take seriously our responsibility about that. And I think most people do. And I'm just trying to contribute like one more thing that one more tool that they can bring to bear, uh, in that endeavor. All right. Catherine Page Harden. The book is The Genetic Lottery. I really recommend it to everybody. Check it out. Um, And thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. This was great.